I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 32. Today in the show, we're sharing updates on the 2014 rut, and then are joined by Jared Scheffler of Whitetail Adrenaline to discuss extreme rut hunting tactics. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, and we have got just an amazing show for you today, but I might be a little bit biased. Today, Dan and I are going to be talking a bit about how our rut vacations have been going so far here in week number two, and then we're going to be joined by Jared Scheffler of Whitetail Adrenaline to discuss some extreme rut hunting tactics. Now, for those that aren't familiar, Jared produces the Whitetail Adrenaline DVDs, which are some of the most unique, most intense hunting videos you will ever see. It's all about public land, all on the ground, and stalking with a bow or gun, and it's just plain crazy. So trust me, this is going to be some really interesting stuff to talk about. But before we get to all that, I've got to catch up with my buddy, Mr. Dan Johnson. How's it going, man? Oh, it's going. Uh, there's deer in the woods, that's for sure. Well, that's a, that's a plus. I'm glad to hear that. That is. That is. That is. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, me and Ryan are hunting hard, haven't taken a day off, um, hunted absolutely every day since he's gotten down here. Um, there was one morning where we were waiting for a, a wind to shift directions completely. It was like right at first light, it was going to be going from a south to a, uh, from a south to a northwest. And so we didn't hunt that morning. We waited to get into the stand at about 930 and then hunted the rest of the day there. Just uh, didn't want to take the chance of uh, having a wrong direction, wind direction. But other than that, we've been we've been hard at it, man. It doesn't the way we hunt. You know, people always say, "Oh, no one hunts harder than this guy," or "No one hunts harder than this guy." But I'll tell you right now, the way that we're running and gunning, and you know, we had all the tr- all these trees trimmed out at the beginning of the year, and. Uh, I think we sat in maybe one, two, three sets that were pre-trimmed trees. Everything else has been a running gun. 
So, wow, we're getting after it. Sounds like it. So, what did you guys start November first? Is that right? Yep, we're on. We just finished up day eleven. Man, so you're definitely pretty exhausted, I imagine, at this point, huh? Right. We are. Uh, we're tired. We're grumpy. We're cold now that this cold front moves through. But that should be the trigger to get us back to where we need to be. I know um, if you follow the Nine Finger Chronicles Facebook page, or I know I've talked to you a little bit about it, uh, Ryan missed the stud. one. He's probably low 180s, high 170s Ugh. the other day. And um, fortunately, we saw him again last night cruising through an area. He's back on trail cameras. Nice. So I don't know. The saga continues. Yeah. So how's how's Ryan holding up after that? I imagine that was pretty tough for him. I tell you, just like anybody would be, he was a little sick about it, um, down on his luck. But he knew that you know, it's Iowa. Anything can happen. And uh, he, I, I don't. He he took it better than I probably would have, to be honest with you. Um, the guy is. Long story short, it, it's not exactly what he does, but he's an anesthesiologist or like a nurse something and in his job if he makes a mistake people die so he knows how to deal with pressure um and not to make an excuse for him missing and he doesn't he wouldn't never want an excuse made for him for himself but it was pretty windy that day and the tree we were in was blowing and i think that had something to do with it to be honest with you but like i said man giant mist there's no there's nothing you can really say except but you know tighten up your bootstraps and get back at it that's all there is to it you're absolutely right gotta keep on grinding that's right that's right so i uh saw that you laid down an awesome buck i want to hear some i want to hear a little bit about that yeah my uh rut vacation since the last time we recorded um it's come a long ways some good things have happened it's been a heck of a week um, you know, when we had talked last, it was last week, Tuesday, and I just left Indiana after hunting there for five days and drove down to my Ohio property. Yeah. Well, we got down to Ohio and started hunting Wednesday morning, um, the fifth, me and my buddy Josh, and I pulled trail camera cards on our way into our stand that morning and checked those pictures. And right off the bat on October 23rd, I had pictures of Drawbreaker. The buck that you know, as you you well know, that I've been hunting him like crazy. He's the buck we talked about in episode twenty eight, I think, that I had hit back uh, on October sixteenth and couldn't recover him. And you know, in the two and a half or three weeks since then, it's just it's been with me ever since, haunted me, um, just really impacted me. So the fact I got these pictures that I thought were jawbreaker just blew my mind. Um, and I was on cloud nine, just an, an enormous amount of relief uh, to know that, to think that he was still alive. So I was stoked. November 5th, was really excited. Um, you know, hunted all day, saw a few does, but nothing much. But going home that night, I was just reinvigorated. You know, after that whole time in Indiana, you know, as we talked about last time, was really slow. But this just got me really excited again. And I talked, you know, to my buddy Josh about the fact, you know, I think it's going to be, it's going to be jawbreaker or bust. He is the buck I want. I want to close that loop. I want to right that wrong. You know, I made that. I made whatever mistakes I made um, the first time around. I wanted to. I wanted to close it out now. So that was my plan. So that night, I'm thinking. You know, as 
you know, as you know, I do, Dan, I'm just racking my brain, overanalyzing every different piece of data I have about what I know or what I knew Jawbreaker used to do and what I know about the current conditions and the wind and weather and what the does should be doing and this thing and that thing. And I decided that I, I thought I knew the perfect place I had to be the next morning. Um, so I got up at 3.15 or 3.30 in the morning so we could drive to the property and get out there well, well before daylight in time for me to sneak into this area and actually hang a portable stand. Um, so this spot, I want to describe the spot a little bit because it was really a, just a dynamite rut hunting spot. Kind of the, in my opinion, kind of a perfect rut hunting stand. Um, so this was an area there was a popular doe bedding area just upwind of me. So I wanted to be sitting just downwind of this doe bedding area, which is some really thick CRP and brush and stuff. So I was downwind of the bedding, and then I'm on this little piece of high ground on the downwind side of this bedding area, and there's a barbed wire fence, an old farmer's fence that runs across this finger of timber that I'm sitting next to, and there's one section of that barbed wire fence that's down, and that is right on this downwind edge. And so what you got here is I'm downwind of a doe bedding area. So bucks should be cruising downwind during the rut, checking that bedding area for does. But then if they do that, the one place they can cross is this little fence crossing. And so it's a funnel downwind of a bedding area. And then to make it even better, right behind me, downwind of me, is a big steep ravine. So nothing can get downwind of me. All my wind blows back over the steep ravine that no deer go into, no deer cross it. So it's just kind of a bulletproof set. I was downwind of a bedding area, I was in a funnel, and I couldn't be winded. So I just went into this knowing I was in a great spot. And on top of that, I picked this bedding area to hunt because it was right adjacent to one of Jawbreaker's most um, common places he used to bed and hang out. So I just I went in there with really high hopes. And, you know, I got set up. It was one of those things where I got there in the morning, and like I said, I knew this specific spot I wanted to be at, but since I didn't have a stand, um, I went in there with a portable and was looking around and got to the spot I wanted to be, but there just was not any good trees right where I needed to be. So I spent maybe 10 minutes, maybe more, just kind of standing there looking around in the dark. I could just see the silhouettes of the trees, walking from this tree to that tree. You know, can I make this one work? Will this one be okay? Should I go with this one? It was kind of the dilemma was, do I go with a tree with better cover, or do I go with a tree that's in the right spot? Because the only tree I could get to in the right spot was one of those kind of beanpole type trees, just kind of narrow, tall, and not a lot of branches and cover on it. And I knew it wasn't going to be great for, you know, concealing me up there. But in the end, I thought long and hard about it and decided I had to be in that spot if I wanted the best shot. And I thought at the very least I could get really high up in the tree and then I could put the tree stand on the backside of that tree so that anything moving through where the deer would be coming from, I would have that tree trunk in between me and those deer. So it gets daylight. It was really cold. The cold front had hit. It dropped down maybe like 20 degrees since the day before. There was a little bit of light rain coming in and out. And it was just, you know, one of those perfect, perfect mornings. And about 8.15 or so, I hadn't seen any deer yet that day until 8.15. I look up and I just see these antlers kind of rise out of the tall grass in front of me. And um, immediately I knew it was a shooter, um, giant buck. And long story short, he starts coming in my direction. I'm getting excited. Excuse me. As I see him, I turn on the camera, and at this time he's probably 100, 150 yards away. And as you know, you know, we talked about during the episode where I talked about Jawbreaker and the first encounter I had with him this year. Um, you know, one of the major mistakes I felt that I made that time is that I was messing around with the camera, trying to get the camera on him, 
and I didn't have time to do that and properly get my bow ready and everything because that whole encounter lasted maybe 30 seconds or 15 around 20 seconds something like that from the time I saw him he was there at like 20 yards right away um well this time I saw him 100 yards out or more and so I had lots and lots of time and I got that camera on him and I had decided you know after our conversation after I'd been thinking through all the different things I wanted to do differently my my plan was that if I had another shot opportunity to deer that was fast like I saw a deer and I was I was not going to have very much time. I had to move fast. I was just going to say, forget the camera. I'm going to focus on the shot. If an opportunity came up where I had lots of time, then I might get the camera out, try to get a little bit of film of him. And if possible, if I can do it you know, smartly, um, I'll have the camera rolling. But I'm not going to sacrifice a good shot opportunity because of it. So that's where things stood with this whole deal. Um, so like I said, I had the camera on him, zoomed in on him, got a good look at him. And right away, I, I was like, oh, my gosh, it's him. I went through the checkpoint, through the different checks. I went, okay, he's got the shorter G2s and G3s, check. He's got a taller right brow time than his left brow time, check. He's got the crab claw G4s, check, check, and check. I mean, everything was in line. And I was like, unbelievable. I cannot believe it. Like, just yesterday, we found out he's still alive, I think. Now, like, I've just been thinking about this deer all night. And holy crap, the first deer I see in the spot where I thought I would see him, boom. Jawbreaker's here at 100 yards, and he's coming in. It was just nuts. So he's coming in. He gets to the trail that I had actually walked in on, and he turns and goes left. I needed him to go right towards me. Um, So I grabbed my grunt call. I let out one deep guttural grunt, kind of a growl almost, and he stopped, turned right towards me, just stared for maybe 5, 10 seconds, and then turned and started heading right towards me. At that point, I was like, holy crap, this is actually happening. Um, Yeah, it was nuts. Um, an interesting side note, you know, last podcast you had talked about, we talked a little bit about some of the new gear we like, and one of the items you had mentioned was nose jammer. It's, you know, the, the spray, it's like vanilla extract spray that you put on there that sort of confuses the deer's nose and and senses. Well, after we had talked, you know, like we said, like I'd mentioned, a number of other people had mentioned this product to me over the past couple of weeks and months. And so when you told me that you were using nose jammer and that you liked it, that was like the straw that broke the camel's back. I was like, I got to get this. So literally that night, I think it was that night or the next night, um, Dan, after we talked, I went to the store and I picked up a couple cans of nose jammer. And so this morning, that morning was the first time I'd ever used nose jammer. And that buck walked right up my trail all the way to me and never, never was worried about sense. So right there, that's a pretty glowing endorsement, um, or at least convincing example for me to see how it working pretty well. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad I tried it. I don't know what, have, what would have happened if I didn't use it that day. But he comes down that trail right towards me. And eventually he gets about right in front of me, about 25 yards away. But there's really tall, like I said, really tall grass and some saplings and bushes and stuff. And there's no shot opportunities because his, his chest isn't open, but he's close. And he gets like right in front of me. And at this point he can he looks up in my general direction and sees my silhouette or shape again I wasn't really well concealed because of the lack of cover up there so he he locks on me and in my head I'm like oh my gosh jawbreakers at 30 yards and you're gonna blow it because you're in a crappy tree and I was just like oh man I can't believe this happened I'm just frozen there and he just stares up in my general direction for a long time but he couldn't make sense of it um he, he knew there was something there because there was this big blob but he just couldn't 
figure out what it was. And so in my head, I'm thinking, okay, if somehow he happens to to not bust me, next time he puts his head down on this tall stuff, I have to draw because I don't think I'm going to have another opportunity to do it. So unbelievably, he puts his head back down, slowly takes another couple steps. And so I draw back my bow and get, get locked in and you know, as this is all happening, I'm thinking through all the things, you know, that happened last time with him. You know, the mistakes I made, the things I wanted to do differently. So I'm, I'm, I'm running through these things in my head. You know, take it slow. Focus on, focus on settling that pin in there. Fix, make sure your peep sight's right. You know, last time my peep sight didn't open properly. So all these things are going on in my head. And I get drawn back. He gets back on me and starts looking at me again. And we ended up timing it because I've got film this whole thing. I was at full draw for almost two minutes. This deer was just staring me down, and I'm at full draw. And after like a minute, I don't know, a minute, minute 15 of holding at full draw, just waiting, just staring at him. He's staring at me. I'm staring at him. I'm at full draw. My back's starting to hurt. My arms are starting to shake. Um, all of a sudden, my legs just go completely out of control. You know, I've just, just been standing there normal, holding back my bow. And then I don't, I don't even know how to describe it, but just they went AWOL. Like, you know at like car dealerships they have those blow up like tall skinny like gumby looking things that are like waving yeah. in the wind those are my legs you got a case of the crazy legs is I, what happened that is exactly what i got and it was so crazy that when it was happening i literally i really swear to god i saw that buck's eyes squint and his head kind of tilt and look at me like what the heck is up there <laughs> like what is shaking <laughs> and i'm thinking in my head i am not going to lose this shot of redemption because my stupid freaking legs can't stop shaking. And yeah. I was, so I just, I just remember thinking that in my head and then like just every ounce of my strength, I used to just tense up my entire body. Like I squeeze my fists, my chest, my arms, my legs, my knees, my feet, everything. I just tried to clench it all as tight as I possibly could to try to stop that shaking. And somehow I did. And the buck's still looking at me. So finally calm the shaking down. He takes another step. And now he's he's just like a step or so outside of my opening in this grass that I can get a shot at. And he's just the front of his like brisket and neck is out in the open. So I just remember settling that pin in just in front of his neck and just sitting there waiting and was ready. And I just needed him to take, you know, give me one more step and I'm going to sink it right in there. And, uh, you know, I waited and I waited. And finally put his head down, nosed around a little bit. And I was like, please, please let this happen. And then he took another step and sunk that pin in right behind the shoulder. Took another extra second, touched it off, and I watched that fletching go right behind the shoulder, right through the lungs, double-lunged him. And he took off running, mule kicked. And uh, and then I just you know proceeded to melt down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just... It was nuts. I, you know, I, I couldn't believe I just got a shot at him again, and all this had happened, and it was just, it was just crazy. I was just really unbelievably happy. And so, to, to make a, a long story short, you know, after that, I called my buddies I was out there hunting with, told them what happened. We decided to, you know, back out, meet up, watch the footage, and then go make a game plan. So that's what we did. I got the arrow, um, decent blood in the arrow, but not a whole lot, but it had gone through a bunch of grass and weeds and stuff, you know, after it passed through him. And so I think some of that wiped off the blood and whatnot. And uh, then as I was walking out, a big rain, a big kind of squall came through. So I was kind of worried that I might get some blood washed away because there was a bunch of rain. But we went, watched the footage. The shot looked great. Um, and, you know, me, 
my friends, Josh and Corey, we all agreed, yep, that's Jawbreaker. And so we decided to wait about, you know, it had been, I think, about two hours after the shot, and we decided to go in for it. So we went in, picked up the blood, had really good blood, um, and we just followed it out through the CRP, and then it went to the edge of the cornfield, and it followed the edge of this cornfield for probably 100, 150 yards, 200 yards, and then he turned into the cornfield, just like Jawbreaker had done the first time that I hit this buck um, in October. We start going through this corn, and blood starts getting a little sketchy, and now I'm starting to get nervous. And now we're at, you know, it's been 300 yards I've been tracking him. And I'm thinking, how in the world has this buck gone so far with that shot? And now we're at 400 yards. And now I'm getting really nervous. Blood's getting sketchy. We get all the way to the other side of the field, and now we're at the property border. And, like, I'm, I'm back down to the low point where I'm like, how could this happen? I've just hit the same buck twice, and I'm not going to find him again. I was just, ugh, I was starting to get worried. And then just as that was happening, I looked down the edge of the cornfield, you know, in the little gap between the fence row and the corn, and I just saw this main beam laying on its side. And it was just crazy. There it was. What time of day did you shoot him? Shot him at 8.30 a.m. And gotcha. I don't think it was till like, noon maybe that we found him. or some, I guess I don't even know what time it was, but sometime in the afternoon. Um, yeah. But... But the result, you know, as you, as you know, Dan, um, and some, some of our listeners know, there was one more kind of twist in the story because, you know, I ran over there. I couldn't believe it. This buck that I'd been, you know, so upset by wounding him, and now I found he's alive, and now I get a shot at him, and then I think I'm not going to find him, and now I just found him. Um, you know, it's been a two-year hunt for this buck. I've got all these pictures and all this history and all this th- stuff that happened. Now I killed him, and I found him, and it was just this crazy wave of emotion that crashed over me. And I run over there to the buck and I put my hands on his antlers and I'm looking at him. And then this weird kind of realization passed through my head. As I'm looking at him, I look at his antlers. He's a stud, big buck. I start looking at his body and I start looking for the wound from when I hit him the first time. I want to see where to hit him. And I don't see anything. And I grab his antlers and I kind of twist his head around I'm looking I'm looking and I just kind of stood up and put my hand on my head and I looked over my buddy I'm like this isn't jawbreaker <laughs> it was not jawbreaker I was so we were all so dead set sure it was him I yeah. thought for sure it was him and uh, it wasn't this is a totally different buck and I mean it kind of it th- really, really threw me off there um, I should have. I, I was. He's an awesome buck, mature buck, c- cool deer. Um, yeah. But in the moment, I was kind of really disappointed because I had, you know, been so determined to to get Jawbreaker to to kind of close out that um, whole whole thing, and I didn't. And um, so for a second there, I was kind of disappointed and upset by it, just, just touched. But then I kind of realized, you know, this is an incredible blessing, an incredible deer an awesome hunt. Um, and so, you know, you can't be disappointed by that. So, you know, long story short, I'm stoked to have gotten this deer. Awesome hunt, huge, just a, a great kind of monkey off my back. You're getting that deer for the year. Uh, it feels great, especially, you know, after having the poor shot on jawbreaker early in the year to, to send an arrow right through the lungs this time to really, you know, get a good one felt, it felt great. And, um, yeah, 
it's awesome. I'm stoked about it. It was cool. I went back, and it's funny. We went and looked back at the trail camera picture. We compared trail camera pictures of Jawbreaker to this deer, like the same kind of look. And, I mean, they are just so, so similar. Like, you know, there's it's like if you took Jawbreaker and took an inch off of every time maybe, I mean, ever all the other antler characteristics almost match up perfectly. It's just like this is like Jawbreaker a year or two younger maybe. Um, well, and that's what that's what I saw when I looked at the picture. I I said, and I don't know what the the post was exactly about, but I'm like, oh, that's just Jawbreaker from the, the previous year. He didn't do too much. But then when I read the article, I said I saw that. Oh my God, it's a different buck. So yeah, now now that you've said it, I was kind of curious on what your reaction was. Yeah, it was uh, it was crazy. I mean. There's, you know, looking back at now, there's a couple of things that, you know, maybe I could, you know, I could, you could know that you could tell the difference, but, yeah. you know, in the moment with him coming in, it, I saw those couple three key characteristics and the big deer and all those things lined up and he passed the eyeball test that was him. So yeah. it, uh, you know, it was crazy how it all happened. Um, but you know, as I guess an addendum to that, you know, now I went through all this stuff, realized this deer wasn't jawbreaker. So then that got me thinking, you know, were those trail camera pictures that I got that I had seen the day before, were those actually Jawbreaker or were those this deer? So I went back and looked at all those pictures and me and my buddies have been studying them. And I just, I don't know. There's like a number of things that line up perfectly. Like his tine length, his crab claw type G4s, um, his right brow tine is taller than his left brow tine. And there's just a slight crook in it. And like that all looks perfect. But in these pictures I've got of this deer, his right G2 looks long, looks just as long as his G3. But on Jawbreaker, his G2 is shorter by like an inch or two. And I, I, I just, I, I don't know. I just can't figure it out because part of me says, how do all these other things line up? His frame, his G4s, his brow tines, how do all those things look almost perfect and this one thing not be it? How could that possibly be? You know, does every darn deer run around this property look exactly the same? <laughs> Um, so I don't know if it's a trick with a camera angle that maybe looks at G2 look too, too long, or maybe it just is a totally different deer that has remarkably similar characteristics. Um, you know, the only pictures I have, they're not great pictures. There's one, two pictures of him walking away. So I'm looking at him from the back, slightly quartering away or quite, quite quartering away. And then the one other picture, he's way in the background and you can just see his right side. And then he's got some bushes in front of his left side. So, you know, I don't have perfect shots of him to tell 100% who this deer is. But I don't know. It's still a mystery to me. Um, don't you have pictures of Jawbreaker um, on trail camera that are 100% sure you know it's him with the wound onto the side? No. No, the, the, only, pic- the only pictures I have are, are these ones I'm talking about. And they were six days, six or seven days after my shot. He passed through one time in the middle of the night, and um, these photos do show what some people think might be the wound, but there's there's weeds there. And I just can't tell if it's weeds that you're seeing in the shadows or if it's actually a wound, but it's it's not obvious. It's not like a, yeah, absolutely, that's him. It's, uh, yeah. geez, it really could be him, but at the same time, I just don't know. So, so that's where things are now. The story continues. The story continues, and, and maybe, uh, maybe Jawbreaker will be back for 2015. You never know. You never know, Mark. Yeah. So it was a roller coaster, just an absolute crazy roller coaster. Right. We're uh, 
we're experiencing, well, we experienced the downs the day Ryan uh, missed uh, we call, the buck we call no-show Jones. But um, he, uh, he showed back up again last night. Now we're kind of getting back on the up. Tonight we had some really cool encounters with some <laughs> with a buck I thought, I thought Ryan was going to shoot, but he ended up passing it. Um, this uh, 10-pointer that you look at this buck, and most people would have shot him, but because he's a three-year-old, this buck in one or two more years will be absolutely giant. He has It's just one of those deer that has genetics written all over him, and he's going to be the next He's going to be the next no show Jones, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So, how big was he now? Um, what I, what I think is probably in the 140 class as a three year old. Nice, um, perfect, perfect ten. With uh, he's starting to get bladed on one of his G2s, and um, he's got a about a two inch sticker sticking straight out of his right uh, base. So, man, um, he's yeah. re- he's pretty recognizable. That sounds kind of like the buck I shot. My buck was 146 inch 10, um, but yeah. he had a sticker coming out of his right base. But instead of sticking straight up, it sticks straight down and actually touches his skull. Um, and oh. So you, you kind of can't see it unless you're looking at the top of his head. So in the pictures, no, you know, you don't see it at all in the pictures. But kind of a cool little feature there. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, we've uh, we're uh, the last couple of days we've been hunting. Like let's see, last night. Um, this morning, tonight, and tomorrow morning, we're going to be hunting in the, uh, the same stand that we've been, uh, sitting in, uh, in the same stand. And, uh, it's going to be over top of a, a well-used two track that it's basically a travel corridor. And, uh, these bucks come through once every couple of days to, um, scent check the bedding area. There's a bedding area near it. And uh, there's a there's a community scrape that every deer that comes to the area hits, and uh, and we're just just waiting. We're five sticks up, so our our wind kind of carries over the entire area. So we're not get, we're not we're not worried about getting busted. We're just it's a patience game now. Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. 
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Yeah. Well, it's that time of year where that patience can pay off if you give it if you give enough time. Right, right. Tomorrow the goal is to potentially sit all day long. We're gonna pull a Mark Canyon. Hey. And uh all right. I'm gonna to have to stock up on the. Uh, I'm gonna to have to stock up on. Um, oh geez, stock up on uh, hand warmers, yeah. and potentially take some toilet paper with me. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> the essentials. Uh, I'm pretty regular, if you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> so who knows? Anything can happen. I, I really like uh, Ryan to tag out tomorrow. Uh, for two reasons. One, because he's been hunting hard this entire time. Two, because I want to hunt for a couple of days too. Yeah, so, I believe it. But, uh, but yeah, man, I just love, I mean, it, it's, it's become a grind. It's become work, but it's because it's a passion that we have. It's, I don't know. It's actually, it's actually less enjoyable than work because Work, you have running water, and you have toilets, and you have heat, <laughs> and you have, this is different. And it's really hard for us to explain. We're trying to explain it today in the car. It's like, why why do people do this to themselves? You know, it's almost like they're setting themselves up for failure. But uh, it's something that, you know, just like you, man, and all the listeners, we enjoy doing it. We we enjoy putting ourselves through the suffering uh, because the, the the reward is so great. Yeah, it's it's a it's ninety eight percent you know a grind, and then you get that just unbelievable two or one percent of the time that just stays with you forever, and it's all worth it for that for those moments. Right, you know, and and both Ryan and I have daughters, and um, we're talking about this the other day too, man. It's this is the hard that that is probably the hardest thing for me is being away from the family. Um, the why we're you know we're we're two days in the week, the second week of our vacation, and the wives are starting to, they're, they're past the acceptance stage, they're on to the I'm annoyed stage, and the <laughs> next stage is uh, fury, and, <laughs> and um, I don't know, man, it's just uh, something we'll do, and you know, they'll get over it, hopefully. <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I can relate to that. I was gone for 10 days, and uh, you know, after I tagged out on my buck, I was planning on staying a while and filming my buddy Josh, um, yeah. and my wife was like, you're what? 
no, you're coming home. <laughs> um, and so I, I convinced her to let me stay for a couple more days. So I, I was able to stay down there for a few. Um, but I came home three days earlier than I was supposed to. So, you know, you gotta, gotta compromise a little bit. And I'm, you know, you and I both are very fortunate of pretty understanding wives that, that let us do this kind of thing. So, yeah. so now, uh, yeah. now I'm going to chase bucks here in Michigan for a few days. So what do you got on camera? Anything? Well, finally I've got, uh, I've got a shooter. He's not, uh, he's not an Iowa shooter. But um, he's right. a he's a really solid eight year or not eight year old, <laughs> a solid three and a half year old eight point here in Michigan. Just a heavy, nice eight pointer. Um, and he's actually we might have mentioned it before. I think I've mentioned a couple times. You know, I've got this one random eight pointer that I kind of get some pictures of, but can never get a good look at him. Um, yeah. I've been getting him on camera here and there, but like I said, never really get a good solid idea of what he is. Um, and I saw him once just before dark and I saw him in a food plot, just like 500 yards away once. So he's been around, um, but I can never get a good eyeball on him. And now finally I just pulled my cameras today and he's like everywhere. I've got five daylight pictures of him or he's been on camera five different times during daylight in the last 10 days. He's been on two cameras, like, I don't know, 15 times. Um, great picture. So all of a sudden he's, he's on it. So I'm going in there tomorrow, going to hunt all day for the next two and a half days and um, see if I can't make it happen. Cool. What, uh, as far as for the listeners are concerned, what kind of, um, are you seeing any chasing uh, when you were down in Ohio or even uh, even up in Michigan? you seeing any chasing? you seeing any, um, I don't know, any, what kind of movement are you seeing? Yeah, glad you brought that up. Um, me personally, across Indiana, Michigan, and Ohio, I have not seen a single instance of chasing. Not yeah. not one. I have not seen a single buck chase a doe. I've seen some cruising, um, yeah. I've, but I've just seen it. It's been really, really slow. I mean, I got a shot at a buck. He was cruising. Um, and we saw a couple other cruisers throughout the days afterwards and beforehand. But, I mean, overall, just super slow movement for me. Um, and like I said, no chasing. So I don't know what, I don't know what's going on. If it just happened to be some bad luck or in the wrong spots or wrong times or, um, but I've, from a number of people, I've heard similar things. So maybe across parts of the country, it's still not really, really hopping, but I don't know you've seen a little bit better, haven't you? I tell you, the only chasing that we've seen is by immature bucks. I have not seen, I have, you know, okay. So that, that mature deer that Ryan missed. We have trail camera pictures of him, and uh, mix. Uh, you add that with the sightings. I don't think he's hooked up with a doe yet, hmm. and I don't think that the mature does. I don't know. The rut prediction said it was going to be early this year. I think, and this is just my opinion based on what I'm seeing from the tree stand. I don't know if the, the first does have come into heat yet. Yeah. I it just it doesn't seem like, the, you know. There's that, it's to that point yet, but, and I hope it comes in the next couple of days because we really need it, uh, <laughs> to happen. But it's like tonight we saw three does the previous day. We saw nothing but bucks. So it's almost like the does know that they're getting ready to come into heat and they're trying to avoid any contact with the bucks and they're, they're bedded down all day long, except for right at last light and early in the morning. Um, so I don't know. It's like I said, no, no mature bucks. Um, I have, I've seen chase, um, just like one, two, one and two year olds. 
And then other than that, um, you know, just uh, your cruising box. That's it. Yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully by next week we'll have something different to tell because right now, right now it's a little disheartening a little bit. But right. it's the rut. Anything can happen any day now. So um, fingers crossed, right? Right, right, right. Now, right. Only, only thing we need to do is try to kill two bucks. And let's see, Ryan is leaving after his hunt on Friday night. So let's see, Wednesday, Thursday, so three days for him to kill and I think I'm going to stick around Saturday uh, so four days so three days to kill four days to kill two bucks I wonder if we can hopefully we can get it done we need a Hail Mary here alright well uh, I'll have my fingers and toes crossed for you I think uh, there's a chance there's a chance there's always a chance that's the truth well it is now time for us to get Jared on the line here Dan so how about okay. we uh, we reconvene next week to talk about our rut progress and for now let's start talking extreme rut hunting tactics with jared scheffler of whitetail adrenaline perfect let's get him on the line all right as we mentioned earlier joining us today on the wired to hunt podcast is jared scheffler of whitetail adrenaline welcome to the show jared yeah uh thanks for having me mark and dan yeah thanks for being here with us we're um you bet you know, as we talked a little bit about before we started recording, I know that this time of year is crazy. It's crazy for me and Dan, so I'm sure it's crazy for you. So we know that taking this extra time to talk, it's uh, it's a sacrifice. So thank you. You bet. Not a problem. Yeah. Now, you know, as we briefly talked about in the intro, you, know, you produce the Whitetail Adrenaline DVDs. But for those out there who might not be familiar with them, can you tell us a little bit about you know what Whitetail Adrenaline is and what makes you guys so unique? Um, there's a few different elements, uh, behind our, our production and our philosophy, I guess, uh, the first and probably the most, um, that people know about or I guess what people know about us is the public land aspect. Uh, we produce all public land, um, whitetail hunting videos and that classifies any land that's legally open for anybody else to hunt. So any type of government program lands, anything that anybody else can legally hunt. Um, so all of our content outside of our first video, that's the only one that's a, it's a partial, it's some public, some by permission. Um, so we've, we've done six straight, this will be, I think the seventh straight season of, uh, it's, it's a blur for me right now, but it's like six (laughs) or seven straight seasons of public land. Um, outside of that, we've always been a sponsor free company, um, where we just, uh, try and incorporate just regular guys uh going out hunting and capture their hunt so to speak um so that's another aspect of it um one of the later aspects that has has come over the past few years is we do all of our hunting um exclusively on the ground um in a very aggressive sort of fashion um and there's a multitude of reasons for that um but uh that's another unique aspect of uh, our videos yeah. and then uh, I'd say that's probably the the core elements um, we also capture everything all on the fly it's unscripted it's really got that raw authentic feel um, we don't go back and refilm uh, stuff so I think that's another thing that kind of comes through so yeah yeah def I'd say those are the things that have drawn me to your as the videos too um, I think you know I first heard about you guys um, 
just from being at different trade shows and stuff and, and seeing your booth and whatnot. And then eventually, um, had seen you enough times around. I was like, I need to just see these, see these guys. And I think I saw one of the trailers for your video, maybe four years ago or five years ago or something back then. And I watched it. And I just thought to myself, these guys are crazy. <laughs> and, and, and then yeah. ever since then, you know, I've watched all your DVDs and I still think you're crazy, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, well, and, and a lot of that, uh, you know, that craziness comes from hunting on the ground. And with, when you're hunting public land and you have that amount of acreage, you can afford to take those risks. And I feel like you almost have to take those risks in order to get the type of results that, that we do. Um, whereas if you would hunt like that on a smaller acreage, say a 40 or an 80, you know, outside of this time of the year, you can get away with it a little bit, but, uh, you're going to probably blow your area right out. Um, so, uh, it, it works out really well that, that, style that we incorporate um on a public land uh aspect although back when i did hunt private land i uh hunted on the ground uh quite a bit um probably not at the at the aggressiveness level that i do now but um i never felt like i really blew out the area back then either um but you know i think i had a couple hundred acres there i was dealing with and i wasn't doing it every day and and so um yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it makes for some really exciting hunts and video. I mean, it's just, we, me and my buddies, we just get an absolute kick out of watching you guys because it's just so different from anything else out there. And it's, it's just crazy intense. And the encounters you have are just unbelievable. I still can't get over some of the stuff I've seen you guys. I can't imagine, you know, what you've actually lived through. Some of those encounters just look unreal. Um, so I'm curious though, Jerry, this just kind of popped in my head, but I've always wondered, you know, when it comes to like 99.9% of, you know, big whitetail hunters out there, we're all hunting from tree stands. That's just kind of the norm mm-hmm. that everyone talks about that you see written about. How did you get started on the ground? Why did, why and how did this become your preferred way to hunt whitetails? Um, well, Mark, it actually goes back to when I, first time I can remember was I was 16 years old and, um, I, uh, you know, I was in high school and, uh, daylight savings changed and everything. And I only had about 45 minutes to an hour before I had to be at school. Right. And it just, it, I wanted to hunt in the worst way, but there wasn't enough time in most of those situations to get out to the tree. And then you're, you'd be sitting there for maybe a half hour, 45 minutes. And, and then you got to climb back down. And I had some, some, uh, wide open area that was a lot closer to the high school where I went. And I was, <laughs> I was kind of sort of making my way towards school one day and uh, I saw this big buck out in this wide open grass. The only thing out there was these giant power poles. <laughs> um, and uh, I went out on foot and uh, I didn't get him, but I got to within about 80 yards and that really kind of, you know, I, I guess that's the first time I can remember hunting on the ground. And then, uh, of course, later that day I got my mom to call call in that I had a doctor's appointment or something. <laughs> I can't remember the details. And I, I did go out and I hung a tree stand in one of those power poles, um, wide open, just a power, you know, just electrical power poles out there. And <laughs> and I, I saw there was two, there had been two big bucks out there and I, I saw another one and uh, he wasn't making his way towards me. And finally I just had enough of it and I was running out of light, probably had a half hour of light left and he was 
400 yards away. So I just climbed down and started making my way towards him. And pretty soon he was coming towards me. And all of a sudden he was at 17 yards. And like a 16-year-old kid, he, he stopped and I was drawn. And there was like two blades of grass between him and I. And I was thinking, well, he'll take surely take another step. And and uh, little did I know that the two blades of grass probably wasn't going to deflect that arrow any. Um, not with a fixed blade head anyway, which I was shooting and, uh, of course, he never took that step. He looked right at me and, and decided to go the other way. So that really was the first instance where I hunted on the, that I can remember hunting on the ground. And then I, I periodically did that along with playing trees, playing the, you know, taking 10 pound tree stands in in the dark in the morning, hanging them, pulling them back down or at night over the years. And then, uh, you know, I did that, but I still hunted on the ground. And then it was in 2010, uh, a few, we had, filmed three videos and it seemed like every time we got a little bit more aggressive hunting on the ground we got more results and then i, I did a, you know just flashed in my head i'm like well most of the bucks i've shot i've done it on the ground and i've hunted much less on the ground than i have out of a tree stand set and uh, i liked the aspect of the, the camera at eye level with the deer and i thought that was unique and it also just when you when you're at eye level with a deer uh, a big buck on the ground level. I mean, you're in that same world as he is. I mean, it's it's like you can almost feel him breathing. I mean, he's right there. And it, there's just something that's it's very exhilarating, <laughs> I, I guess imagine. you could say. So we decided let's take one season and just hunt exclusively on the ground and see how it goes. And our encounter rate went through the roof on big bucks. Um, however, with that comes there's a there's a learning curve to it there's a um the hardest part i think about hunting whitetails on the ground typically is pulling off the shot and when i say hunting on the ground i mean like when you're going after them or sneaking in on them or or something like that um especially with two guys out there a lot of times they do know that you're there by the time you're about to take that shot and you can get caught up in rushing a shot or forgetting hey, this deer's probably going to duck 10 inches or um, things like that. So <laughs> there's definitely been a, you know, our encounter rate has been a lot higher since we've hunted on the ground. But the the, the uh, blown shots or, you know, uh, messing up the shots has, has definitely also increased at a higher percentage as well. But like anything, I think the more you do it, the better you're going to, um, you're going to lessen that, I guess you could say. So are these bucks, when you, when you start your stock on them, are they bedded or are they standing? Um, I prefer to have them bedded, but, um, they're not always bedded. Uh, I prefer to have them bedded just because obviously I've got a little bit more time typically and I can pick my route and, uh, I don't have to worry about the, the, when I can manipulate the wind direction a lot easier because I have the time to get in position how I want to work towards him or, or whatnot. Um, but sometimes we, you know, we've got a buck that's cruising or whatever. And, uh, well, yesterday, for instance, um, we were in Iowa and we had a big, big one, uh, probably a mid one sixties buck. And, uh, we actually bumped this deer. We bumped a 140 inch eight pointer checking out this piece and uh Jeez. he went running off and about 30 and i'm thinking oh man 
you know, I just blew that one and I'm thinking, okay, how's he going to loop back on the public? Can we give him about an hour and slowly creep into where we think he went and maybe spot him again? And all of a sudden I hear this trotting and I look and here's this mid one sixties buck, uh, trotting. And I don't know if he saw us or picked up a little sense or what, but then he stops, um, in the brush a little bit, maybe 120 yards out. And he stood there for about 10 minutes. I actually thought he was going to lay down. But uh, I, the wind blew towards him a couple times. It was really swirling in there, and I think he picked up a little more and just moseyed out. Well, we did a big loop, and we were only about maybe five, ten minutes behind getting getting ahead of where he ended up. He, he came out about 80 yards through the woods and beat us to where we, we thought we could cut him off. Um, so, you know, we prefer to have them bedded, but if they're cruising or whatnot, um, we'll – We'll make an attempt. Um, very rarely do we not get aggressive with them. Our mentality is they're there right now today. Let's go for it. Because a lot of times we don't have all season to play with them. Uh, and the next day, you know, squirrel hunters could be in there hunting or another bow hunter could move in or anything could happen on a public land aspect that could completely, you'd never see that deer again the rest of the season. Um, so, we've just found a lot better results trying to go after them. And if we blow it, we just get aggressive and move on to the next spot or the next, you know, trying to find the next deer. That's kind of our mentality on it. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a, a unique way of hunting, especially in Wisconsin when everybody, you know, you think Midwestern states, you know, Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, you think tree stands. But um, as far as this year is is going, um how is how is your rut going so far this season? What states have you been hunting? Um, I've for the rut here I've targeted Wisconsin, Iowa, and then we just got to Kansas today. Um should have probably never left Iowa, but uh, our plan is to hopefully do well here in Kansas and then and then get back to Iowa for a few days. So that's what kind are, of our tentative plan, but what are you seeing for movement? Uh, probably the best road activity I've ever seen really? um, this year. Yeah, actually, uh, two weeks today, there's only been one day where we didn't see shooters. Um, wow. Yeah, that's I've never had a streak like that. Um, however, I've also never had a streak where we've seen so many shooters and not, not gotten shots. I, everything is this seems like it's, there's been multiple shooters that have been close enough to get shots, but just either too many sticks or couldn't get them to stop. Or, you know, I mean, we had one that laid down 30 yards away that came through and we just couldn't get a shot. And also he, he laid down and there was a big, big one that, uh, actually there's two of them that came in and, uh, this one laid down 30 yards away and, and we could not get him. All we needed him to do was move two steps, and we couldn't get him up on his feet. And finally, got too dark, and and that was it. You know, I mean, we've had multiple situations. I did blow a shot a week ago in Wisconsin. I rattled one in, and uh, and I uh, I shot a little well, um, and I hit uh, probably two feet under him. Um, I, it uh, it was. Uh, I mean, I'm hunting with a longbow, but. Uh, I, I shouldn't hit that well. I don't know what happened, but uh, what part of Iowa are you are you hunting in? 
Now that's that's the million dollar question, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, here's here's the thing. Here's the thing. I I don't disclose I don't disclose areas where I where I hunt for obvious that's, reasons. That's fair. Um, North, um, south, east, west. What's that? North, south, east, west. I'm not looking for a town. I, I usually tell people Hawaii. <laughs> <laughs> you know their white uh, um, population is booming. What's that? Their white tail population is booming. Oh, yeah, it's excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Over-the-counter tags, cheap flights, everything. <laughs> um, no, uh, I mean, as far as where I've hunted Iowa, I've hunted uh, western, south, northeast, north, central, and then kind of central, too. Um, and they're all good. I would rank the southern part of Iowa as probably being the best and then central as being the next best. Um, that's about all I want to disclose. <laughs> uh, I started a rule a few years back cause it got a little bit out of hand. And, uh, it, I started a rule that if you're not on the trip, you don't get to find out. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, Fair that's enough. something, that's something. It, well, it just about. keeps everything simpler. Yep. So yep. I totally understand that. Um, but. so, you said you've seen more shooters than you've seen maybe ever, um, or at least recently. How many different encounters ha- do you think you've had so far this year with shooter bucks? In uh, those 15 days, I guess, counting today, um, actual encounters has probably been uh, about 20. <laughs> about, about 20. Um, uh. And uh, I guess... Like yesterday, for instance, there was three of them that we had. We actually yesterday was the best day I've had in a wooded environment for hunting. We saw three bucks that were in the one sixty to one seventy five range. Jeez. Um, now, uh, in a wooded environment, you know, one of those in a day is is probably the most I've ever had that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, I don't know what was going on. It was uh, it was crazy. Furthermore, I have no idea how we couldn't close a deal on one of them. We just the cars just haven't been in our our favor lately, as far as that goes. Um, it's it's been uh, it's been a little uh, nerve wracking, I guess. But um, usually, I mean, we we get you know two three encounters, we're gonna get we're gonna get a deer. That's usually how it, how it goes. But uh, not lately. Yeah. <laughs> so. So that's a perfect segue then, I think, into you know, the main thing we want to talk about today. Um, you know, as I mentioned, wanted to focus our conversation on extreme, aggressive rut hunting tactics. And so this falls right in your wheelhouse, Jared, given what you've already talked about and, and how we know you hunt. Um, so maybe to kick things off on this front, can you maybe give us a high-level idea of what your basic tactics or strategies are for hunting the rut? this time of year you know what are you basically doing and then from there we'll dive into some excuse me specifics sure Sure. okay um in the wooded environments my tactic typically is um we'll go into a piece let's say it's a brand new piece we've never been to and a lot of times that's the case we're going into brand new acres we've never been to and we'll move through it at a fairly good clip until we find you know, good sign, whether it's, it's, it's gotta be fresh looking sign to, to, 
to where we're going to put the brakes on and slow our pace down. So, because what we want to do is the first thing is you've got a lot of public land and we need to find out where today's hot spot is. Um, you know, what they were doing last week or, or whatever doesn't really uh, pertain. You know, it's not something that we're interested in. Um, we need to make it happen right now, today. So we're looking for really fresh sign, uh, you know, and places that uh, are really happening. And so many times what we'll do is we'll go into the woods and we'll we'll start at a walking pace. And once we come across something that we feel like we need to put the brakes on and slow it down and start glassing through the woods, we'll do that. Whether that takes bumping a deer, you know, bumping a doe or two, you know, and I've had this happen where I bump a doe or two and they run off and they're just about out of sight and they kind of put on the brakes and you start glassing the woods. And 10, 15 minutes later, all of a sudden a buck shows up. I've even had them when the does start blowing, but they don't completely leave the area. They just keep blowing. And I've had shooter bucks show up like, they're almost annoyed by the blowing, but by them those blowing, it, it tells them, you know, it lets a buck know across the ridge, hey, there's does over there. And they're they're blowing that stuff all the time. Now, if a deer blows and leaves the entire area, that's that's not a good thing. Yeah. But um, I don't really get wound up in the last few years when a doe starts blowing until she completely leaves the area. Um I see it about every year where we bump a doe or something and she'll sit there and blow and blow and blow. And almost every year that I can remember for the last three years that I've just put on the foot brakes, I've had a shooter show up at some point within 10, 15 minutes. Um, Jeez. So uh, I don't worry too much about bumping deer. A lot of times public land deer are used to being bumped too. Um, so I think their tolerance level is a little bit higher, but uh you know, once we get into a spot that uh, that's hot, like I said, we'll put on the brakes, we'll start class, and sometimes we will set up on a spot. I mean, we'll we'll set up on the ground. We found a spot in Wisconsin this year that uh, uh, I think it was every day we went in there, we had a shooter uh, in rain. We just we couldn't pull it together. That's the spot where I missed one. That was a spot that uh, we didn't really, you know, we we ex- still hunted through it to find it, but then. You know, we realized right away, hey, this is a pinch point location. And and uh, I actually rattled in a couple of different shooters there, but only the one made into the lane. So um, so that's a little bit about the, the wooded environment. I mean, if they're if if we're going through the woods and we catch one, a lot of times we'll be glassing these like ridge points um, in these ridge, ridge, you know, hilly areas. Uh, these bucks, they, they love to be on the ends of these ridge points. They love to sit up there. They can watch both sides a lot of times or, mm-hmm. or you know, 10, 20 yards across, and they can look down the valley. And so we'll we'll be at the bottom of the valley glassing up on those ridge points. Yesterday, in fact, one of the really big ones that we spotted, it was doing just that. Um, it was up on top of the ridge, but uh, we just uh, we didn't get there in time. Um, but... Uh, that's kind of uh, a little bit about it. Um, you know, in your more open woods, basically, we have to be moving at a slow enough pace that deer can't hear us. And, and if that kind of makes sense, if they can hear us coming before we can see them, they're already looking for us. Like, what is that over there? If that yeah. kind of makes sense. And, yeah. and if, 
any deer that, you know, is looking for you is going to see you first. And, and so, uh, if that kind of makes sense, it's, uh, it's something that once you start doing it, you kind of figure out what you can get away with, what you can't, how to walk, how to sound like a deer kind of, or something that's not a human. Humans typically, they, they walk at a pretty steady, even pace. Um, and so you just kind of learn some of those techniques as you go. Um, since we've started producing these videos this season, especially I've seen it where people have messaged me a lot that, Hey, I tried hunting on the ground this year. I shot the biggest buck I've ever shot, or I shot this buck, big one. I can't, you know, six yards he came in or, I mean, they're just blown away. Like I never thought you could hunt on the ground like this. Um, I believe it's something that uh, most people can do very effectively, more effectively than they probably think. Um, and I mean, just, I think it was yesterday. I got another one that came in. I uh, got shot at six yards. Uh, <laughs> came in. Yeah. And, uh, I got one two days before that from another guy, uh, similar situation. I can't remember. It was inside of 10 steps that he shot, uh, that one at, but, um, and, and one other thing I, I do want to mention is um, over the past few years, we've taken uh, on the ground level, we've taken head-on shots on deer. And, uh, you know, traditionally, you know, it was, it was actually an accident the first time it happened to me. Um, I bumped my trigger release when I had one facing me. And I had the pin right there. Well, it got me thinking, like, you know, at head on level, I mean, you're driving the arrow right, right home. And those are the quickest kills I've ever seen in my life. In fact, one of the guys from the other day said the same thing. And it was about a 10, 12 second deal. Um, I think that's a very common shot that happens on the ground or a very common angle. A lot of times it seems like those deer, if they do spot you and they give you a, a few seconds, a lot of times they do square up with you or they just, for whatever reason, they're coming directly at you. That happens a lot. Um, that's actually become our favorite uh, shot angle. Um, broadside has actually been one of our least uh, least effective. Um, and I, I've thought about it a lot. Um, a, a head-on shot, there's no uh, – you don't have to worry about if they're going to take a step forward or, or even if they – start to turn you still got a quarter and two shot which with a good broadhead isn't and you know typically an issue um and also if they duck a lot of times they duck their the front of their bodies a lot more than their rear from what i've seen and so even if you kind of hit them high uh like my uh, buddy shay here in the videos he uh hit one, a deer high last year that was head on it looked high, but it actually came out, and that was with the G5 Montec had fixed blade. It actually came out right between the back legs on the bottom side. So, wow. it if that kind of makes sense, they're from what I've seen, their their bottom drops a lot more. So you've got you've got a, quite a bit of surface area and a lot of veins, and you're taking out a lot of vitals on that angle. So, um, I'm not going to suggest necessarily taking it, but it has been become our favorite. Uh, on the ground that is now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver 
off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid, and it was a big deal. Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's interesting. So, yeah. so you mentioned you know, a lot of these tactics that you're using in the wooded environments. Now, are you doing anything drastically different when you're in the wide open, maybe prairie type environment like Kansas or something like that? Yes. Yes. Um, in, in the wide open areas, typically we'll get to, we'll do one of two things. We'll get to an elevated position, whether that's a big hill or some, somewhere where we can get up high and glass a lot of area. And uh, we're, we're going to try and get a bead on, on one, whether we spot them already laying down or spot them in the morning going to lay down somewhere. And uh, we'll try and, you know, uh, just spot them laying down and then plan our attack from there. Um, that's typically our tactic for uh, the open areas. Um, last year, we got pretty effective with a homemade decoy that we we built where we'll we'll find these these big ones that are locked down with does and then we'll uh we'll take this decoy in towards them and you know and we found the best results is to try and sneak in as close as you can without them ever knowing or seeing the decoy and then and then get it in the position uh and then uh try and get that buck to, to come over to run you off which uh from behind that decoy can get uh it's dangerous for one, but uh, <laughs> I, our philosophy is so is rock climbing and a lot of other things that you can do. Um, so we're willing to accept that and take those risks. Uh, and we could get injured or something that very bad could go wrong. I mean, you're dealing with a mature animal that uh, is 
you know, fight. No, it's, it's not safe, but it sure is a rush and, uh, it, it can be effective. Yeah. The, uh, um, the the footage I've seen of you guys doing that so far is just incredible. I mean, that's nuts. Um, so I'm curious, I'm curious, two things. Number one, um, I'd like to hear if you have had any close calls where you thought you might, uh, you know, come away with a, with a skewed rib or something like that. But then number two, would love to hear, would love to hear details about, you know, how you're going about with the decoying setup, you know, how you're thinking about the wind, how you approach, when do you do it? I'd love some details on that too. Sure. Um, we haven't had anything super close happen as far as like one that actually, you know, attacked us. Um, the closest probably was, uh, one that I shot last year at, uh, just inside of seven steps, you know, and he was <laughs> marching in. And if I would have let him, he would, he would have charged and, uh, he would have charged the decoy, which I was directly behind it. And, uh, who knows what would have happened. We, we do think that at some point, um, even if we do get an arrow in one, he probably will just commit and keep coming. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen from that point forward, but, uh, you know, it's very likely that that'll happen at some point. Um, and then when I was filming Shay last year on this really big buck, uh, I thought that uh, I was going to have to make a 911 call any minute, but uh, that never happened. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see. I'll, I'll, I might have more reports within the next week. Yeah, I guess we're going to we're gonna have to keep an eye out on your Facebook page. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, as far as... Uh, you mentioned a little bit about uh, our tactic once we have one spotted. Yeah. Um, in these wide open areas, a lot of times they like to cover miles, even if they got a deal with them in the morning. Um, we've we uh, we've watched them go for five six miles at a crack in these wide open areas. Uh, it's it's been pretty surprising. I mean, uh, I would have never thought that a, a deer would cover that amount of terrain but they will um and when there was a doe like that uh obviously um you know we're going to wait for them to settle down and uh and hopefully this happens a lot of times where we're dealing with 160 acres of public here and then maybe 300 acres of private here and then you know maybe a full square of public over here. And sometimes they land on public and sometimes they land on private, you know? <laughs> and so you, you don't always get to play with them. Sometimes you might end up watching them for an hour before um, all of a sudden they decide they're going to lay down on private and there's nothing you can do. Um, so that happens sometimes as well. But once we have them spotted, um, we plan our attack. Once we have them spotted and they're, we, we figure they're going to stay there for a little little while, enough time for us to get in. What we do from that point is, obviously, where's the wind blowing from? How can we get in on them? Um, you know, using the wind to our best advantage. And then also, you know, what's going to be the best route to um, sneak in undetected as close as we possibly can? Um, and then also, uh, you know, Obviously, we're factoring in how they're laying, which direction they're looking, all those kinds of things. Um, on windy days, that decoy just it's, it doesn't really work because uh, it gets blown all over. So okay. we have to resort to you know a lot of times crawling 
on our hands and knees, which is fun too. Um, we had a really close call last year on a big nine pointer. And, uh, this one day we, we didn't know exactly where he was, but we knew he was somewhere in these weeds and we were five steps from him before we realized it. And, and it was too late. Um, so, uh, we were, we were right on top of him, but, uh, it doesn't always work to use that decoy and not always is the decoy the best option. Uh, it just depends on the situation, but, uh, that's kind of our, um, kind of our approach in those wide open areas that during, during the rut is to, uh, you know, just spot them and, and plan your attack. What we have found is if they're on the move, even if you know they're going across a square mile, by the time you get around to the other side of the square with the vehicle and to, to get, try and find a spot to get in the position, they're already through it. That's how much ground it, it does not take them five minutes hardly to cover a square mile. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. Um, we have not yet once been able to get one square ahead of them before they're already there, basically. <laughs> um, so, and I mean, trying to get two squares ahead of them, uh, you lose sight of them and then they go, they decide, okay, we're going to, they, they cut, decide to cut south and then all of a sudden you don't have a visual on them. So, um, uh, in these wide open areas, a lot of times we will just stay in the vehicle, maybe three quarters of a mile away, watching them, tailing them, trying to figure out where they're, you know, where they're going and keeping an eye on them. Cause once you lose visual, you're probably going to lose them, uh, the rest of the day. So, yeah. So, so you know, whether it be in wooded environments or open areas yep. like that, are you hunting drastically different during the rut than you would if you were, you know, employing these same type of on the ground spot and stalk methods, let's say in early October? Um, or is it basically, you know, the same thing you're walking and looking for sign and then slowing down or you're glassing, spotting and moving in? Is it different or the same all year? Um, early October when I, you know, this year was the first year where I didn't really hunt early October. Uh, at all in Wisconsin where I normally would because we tried a out of state trip. Uh, but, um, typically what I do at, during the early October is I'll go into a new piece every time I go out and I don't really, it's more of a scouting session. I'm hunting and I'm, I'm probably walking or still hunting, you know, going at a, you know, a walking pace or a, you know, or a, slow walk pace or sometimes I might walk a few steps and take a couple minutes. But basically my, my mission for that day, usually in early October is to decide what places I want to key in on late October. That's kind of my mission um, is to find a few places that are holding, you know, some does uh, where I can, you know, creep in there during late October and uh, try and glass a buck you know, that's, that's in and around that doe bedding area or even set up near that doe bedding area. Um, so that's kind of my approach in early October. I don't really go out with the, with the, um, focus of, I'm going to try and fill my tag today. My mentality is trying to find the places that we want to zone in on more late October, early November. Okay. Now, something you mentioned there might tie into this, but um, when you're heading into these areas, then let's say this time of year, 
um, you know, are you keying in on specific things like a doe bedding area, like you mentioned there, or you mentioned earlier that you, you found a pinch point and you set up there, you know, when you start your walks, are those things you're specifically looking for? And if you find it, you then focus your time there. Um, or are there any uh, other spots like that? Yeah, not, you know, in, in early October, I won't target like, you know, like say a doe bedding area or anything. Um, I'm basically, you know, let's say I walk into a place and I, I jump say four or five does or something, you know, uh, it's not the right time of the year for me to zone in on that, but I know that late October, that's where I'm going to want to be late, late October in Wisconsin, early November. That's where I'm going to want to be, you know, yeah. not maybe so much on the rubs or the scrapes. I mean, you know, we'll still find fresh scrapes in late, late October, early November, but that isn't really where the, the, the you know, the big bucks are, keying in most of their, you know, they're not so much concerned with those. They might be a, you know, they might be happen to be in a pinch point, those rubs and scrapes, which might not be a bad location. If there's, you know, a bedding area somewhere on each side of it, they might be using that pinch point. And so we might naturally be set up there. Um, not so much because of the rubs and scrapes, but because we know because of the rubs and scrapes that they frequent through there. So we know they're going to be using it to get from this building to the that kind of makes sense yeah definitely and so it kind of sounds like you know during the rut you are basically keying in on the same areas that you know everybody hunting a tree stands keying in on right you're looking for doe bedding areas and pinch points and whatnot you're just finding those spots and then moving through them until you find more activity versus specific or picking a specific spot there and waiting right right and i mean like i said public land deer a lot of times they're more tolerant. So you can bump up these, you know, four or five does or whatever's in there out in early October and pretty safe bet you're not going to mess anything up for late October uh, as far as, you know, that goes because they're used to getting bumped occasionally. So um, I'm not so worried about that. But, uh, yeah, I'm keying in on those same types of places where you would with a tree stand. I'm just, um, you know, in, in late October, early November, we might go into a woods and uh, we might still hunt through some of those areas. And we might set up shop, depending on... That's where there's a sense of... Uh, there's a sense of feel that happens every time we go out, you know. Um, if that kind of makes sense, like yesterday, it just felt hot. But today we go into that spot or or whatever, and maybe it just doesn't have that same feel to it, you know, whether it's the activity or or something, it doesn't have that same feel. We might bust out of there and go to another spot. Um, We're not waiting for a spot to get hot, um, if that kind of makes sense. And we might come back in a couple of days. But uh, I don't know. That's uh, It's really hard to – I think the more you do it, the more you just kind of gain that sense of feel for when it's time to pack up shop and and go to another spot, whether that's for the day or the rest of the season, you're going to scratch it off the list. Um, I think knowing when to pull the plug on a spot is, is very key, you know? Yeah. I think that's something that people struggle with, whether they be in a situation like yours or even just, you know, hunting tree stands, the same thing goes, you know, when's the spot cold and you need to move on somewhere else. That's a tough, it's a tough call to make. Right, right. And I mean, when we find a hot spot, we'll milk it for everything it's worth. Um, you know, we'll go in there 
continually. Um, like this one spot we found this year in Wisconsin, I think it was five or six days in a row that we hunted it. We had shooters come through every day. Um, and we just kept, and they were different bucks. Um, and we just kept milking it while it was hot. Cause a lot of times there's not a lot of spots that stay hot all season long. You know, they go in spurts. Um, and so when they are hot like that, you know, we just get in there and, and like I said, milk it till it's dry. And as soon as we sense it's going dry, we're on to the next piece. We call it not getting emotionally attached <laughs> to spots. Yeah. Um, it's, it's very easy to do, especially the more time a person invests in a spot. It's very easy to get comfortable. I mean, we as humans, um, we develop, you know, habits, you know, you go into one restaurant, a restaurant one time. And, and if you seat yourself, chances are, if you go back again, you'll seat yourself in the same spot. Um, so it's very easy to get comfortable with going back to that same spot. And, and we try and always keep that in our, you know, conscious mind. Like, are we getting locked down to this spot? I mean, if it's really, truly hot, it's worth being locked down, but <clears throat> We, you know, we're always very aware of when to pull that plug, and are we getting emotionally attached to this spot that's going dry? If that kind of makes sense. Yeah, it's so applicable too to to guys hunting from stands, right? There's so many people that have their favorite tree stand, and they go back mm-hmm. to it time and time again. And uh, it's like you said, you get attached to it; it becomes comfortable, it's easy, and uh, lots right. of times that's uh, you're missing out on some real action elsewhere. So right, and you bring up a good point. Um, that's another thing with hunting on the ground. It's very easy for us to, you know, get in and out of places and move on to the next spot. Um, whereas like you were mentioning, you know, if you've got a tree stand set, it's very easy to, you know, it's, it's not a lot of work to, to go back into that spot. But let's say that's your only tree stand set and you got to think about pulling that tree stand down and relocating it or, or whatever. Um, there's a little bit more work and effort involved in that. And, uh, it's really easy when you hunt on the ground to just go into a spot and, and pull out. There's not, there's less investment as far as that goes, if that kind of makes sense. Oh yeah. I've definitely battled with that question myself. Do I want to deal with pulling this whole tree stand down and moving a hundred yards and putting the whole dang thing back <laughs> up again? <laughs> right. Right. Those times and I wish you, I was on the you, ground. Yeah. And I mean, you, you'd be surprised at what I think, what, a person can get away with on the ground. Um, you know, I mean, that's primarily how they hunted 40 years ago and they didn't do it with the bows we have today. Yeah. Um, or the, or the camouflage, uh, that we have today. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, I think hunting on the ground is a very effective. In fact, I think it's, it's probably the best skill that, uh, we've developed on our end and not that we've fully developed it. But, um, you know, we're continually learning and seeing where we've done things wrong. But uh, it's def- if, if we went away from that, our opportunity and counter rate would go way downhill, I think. So so I want to I ask you about a situation that yeah. I think a lot of our listeners probably will encounter. And so, you know, the vast majority of other hunters are hunting from tree stands. But there is a situation mm-hmm. where lots of times hunters are placed in a situation where they might consider going down on the ground and that's when they're hunting during the rut let's say i'm sitting up in my tree stand tomorrow 
It's about 1030 in the, in the morning. And I see a buck and a doe walk out into some, maybe, maybe some tall grass or some bedding cover. And I see that doe bed down and then the buck beds down next to her. Maybe it's a little mm-hmm. bit, it's a little bit windy that day. And now I'm sitting here thinking, should I try to stalk in on that buck better with the doe? This is, I've seen people do this before. I've seen people talk about doing this before, but I've also heard people talk about, ah, too risky or too many, too many things that can go wrong. So my question for you, Jared, is if I'm sitting there and I see this buck better with a doe, can you walk us through how you would make the decision on, you know, when is it a good time to move in on a deer like that? When is it a good time to mm-hmm. hold back? And then, you know, how are you going sure. about making that move in this case where I'm up in the stand and I need to decide, should I go? How should I do it? Sure. Um, first thing that I would evaluate is, um, where I think they're going to go next after they get up. Um, because that's probably going to determine a lot of how I would move in on that animal. Um, you know, depending if the wind's going to work for me in that situation too. And a lot of times we'll do what we call cheat the wind where let's say you've got a pretty continuous you know, the wind's blowing in a pretty straight line where it's not swirling, really. It's not swaying a whole lot. It's blowing north pretty much the same direction all the time. But you've got a very slight window where those deer are going to have to be in order to smell you. And we've done this before where we'll we'll come in and those deer might feel like they're downwind of the danger up ahead. But if unless they're on that exact scent stream, they're probably not going to smell you as long as that wind's blowing. And you've seen it before in your tree stand steps. You see where the wind's blowing. And as soon as they get to that spot that you've identified right where that wind's blowing, that's when they smell you if they're going to. Um, so that's the first thing that's going to run through my head is where I think they're going to go next and how, you know, can I work that route to get in position and start to, you know, let's say I've got to do a little loop on them. Let's say they're 100 yards out. And uh, I think they're going to go straight the other way on the other side of where I'm at. Well, I'm probably going to do a loop and get around to where I think they're going to go next and come in from that angle just in case they decide to get up while I'm still trying to sneak in and go that direction. Okay. Um, however, if the wind's blowing really strong and I know that I can close that gap to where they're at in a very short time, I might just, in that case, I would maybe just climb down and take my chances that they're going to lay there long enough for me to get in there and, you know, close that distance. Um, obviously, yeah, the closer you get, the, you know, the quieter and everything like that you've got to be. Um, what, one thing that I have learned is if they can't see or hear you move as fast as you possibly can to close that distance, because I've had this happen in multiple cases where, we could have moved faster and we didn't and we were five minutes too late or just a couple minutes too late. Um, so I, I would recommend moving as fast as you can in those situations to close that, that distance. And then once you're getting close, you know, you, you got to put on the brakes. Um, and the other thing that I found is, um, I never try and take my eye off them. Um, you know, every time I'm taking a step, I'm, I'm trying to move my head a lot. I'm keeping my eyes on them and I might glance down at where I'm going to go next. But I'm, before I move, I'm glancing right back up and watching them because <clears throat> multiple times we, we 
you know, this has happened a lot where, you know, they might hear something and they might kind of look your way for a little bit and then they decide, well, that was a bird or a squirrel or whatever. It's whatever's over there is not a threat, you know, but if you weren't watching them, they're going to pick you off moving. Movement is by far the biggest factor. And I've also had times where they do pick up a little movement and they stare you down for five minutes and then they drop their head and pretend like they're not looking at you to try and get you to move again. Mm -hmm. It happens pretty much every time when they (laughs) stare you down for five minutes. If they haven't blown out of the area and left, they haven't decided yet that A, you're a human or B, you're a threat, one or the other or a combination. Um, And they'll, they'll almost always do that. They'll put their head, I wait for it or we wait for it. You know, we wait for them to put their head down, pretend like they're not looking to get you to move again. And almost always they'll snap their head up to try and get you to flinch or wiggle or something. (laughs) And they might do that a couple of times. And and a lot of times they'll grow comfortable. If you just can freeze and hold that position, it might be 10, 15 minutes and your muscles might be getting pretty wore down. But a lot of times they'll get comfortable and forget about you after they've decided that you're nothing at all. And then you can kind of go on your way again. Um, so we have had that happen uh, quite a bit. Um, but definitely you got to keep your eyes on them when you're moving because uh, movement's probably what's going to kill you. Yeah. So so let's say you get to within range, and let's say yep. they're still bedded there. The buck and doe's bedded. You were able to get within shooting range. What would you recommend someone do at the very at that final moments do you try to do something to get that buck to stand up so you can get a shot or will you just stand there and wait however long it takes till he naturally stands up um that depends on the the situation but i'd say most of the times i'd wait um the problem with waiting is they can catch you off guard when they're gonna when they're gonna finally stand up you know and all of a sudden you might not be prepared because it might be two three hours and all of a sudden they decide they're gonna stand up and uh, and they do, and maybe they they catch you, or maybe you can't get drawn in time because you might have a, a small window where you can get a shot in, you know. Or maybe they'll stand up and not give you a shot. Maybe they'll be, you know, stand up and start in face straight away, right away. Um, so I guess we've never taken a a shot on a bedded deer. We've always pretty much waited for them to stand. Um, there may be situations, say, in like a wide open area where you could take like a clump of a, a rock or something and throw it over to the other side of them to get them to stand up and look over away from you. Right. That maybe would be a good situation to, to do something like that. And there's one particular deer that I'm thinking of in my head where I was I was filming a buddy of mine, and, and I wish we would have done that. We got to about 12 steps of this deer, and, uh, and he he'd been there for, I think five hours and, uh, he just decided to stand up and we had been kind of looking for something to throw on the other side of him, but just, you know, I could have grabbed a camera battery or something and chucked it over there, <laughs> you know, there's, but I, you know, I mean, and that would have been a good case to do it because we were in the wide open and as soon as that deer stood up, it was probably going to bust us. He just, he couldn't, he was in the wide open as soon as he stood up, but outside of that, he couldn't see us when we were sneaking in on him really. So, wow. Um, but most of the time, yeah, I'd, I'd probably recommend waiting if you can. Um, but, uh, 
you know, that's all up to the, uh, it, it depends on the situation and how comfortable uh, it's a determination for the, the person in that situation, I guess. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's helpful. So my final kind of question yeah. topic here during this time of year, during the rut, are you doing any calling and rattling? And if so, you know, can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that and your strategy when and how sure. you use those tactics? Sure. Um, this season's the first season in a while where I've called more than I typically would. Um, usually what I like to do is lay quiet on a deer and, uh, not let him know I'm there at all. If I'm going to move in on him rather than try to get him to come because, you know, he might come in downwind and with two of us there, he might smell us, you know, and I've had, we've, we've had pretty good results spotting them and moving in on them or getting ahead of them. So we typically lay quiet. However, uh, this, this season, um, this one particular spot, we weren't really, you know, it was a pinch point. It was a hot spot. It was a spot that you had to set up on. You couldn't really still hunt it. I mean, it'd take you a half hour to still hunt and a half hour after you left, a big one could come cruising through there. You know, it's one of those kinds of spots. So it really made sense to, to, to sit there and set up. And that was a, a, a spot where, you know, occasionally I would hit the horn, hit the horns or, or whatnot. Um, and it was also about a hundred yards from some, some private land where I knew that there might be a buck right on the other side that, you know, maybe he wasn't going to come or whatever that I can't do anything about other than rattle or, or something of that nature. And so, um, you know, I, I called in a couple, a couple bucks in that particular spot utilizing that. Uh, typically when I hit the horns, what I like to do, I like being on the ground for one because you can rake the leaves, you can take the antler and make it sound like a deer walking, you know, by pounding the base into the leaves. And you can do a lot of that um, type of natural sounds, yeah. you, know, you know what I mean, to go with the antlers. Um, you can break sticks and you can do that in the tree too. But the leaves, I think, is a important factor, especially on those days where they can hear it so well. Oh, yeah. Um, so I definitely like utilizing that. So, um, you know, calling is, is kind of like a secondary means for me, I guess you could say. It's when nothing else is really, it's A, when nothing else is really going on, I'll give it a whirl kind of thing, or B, that deer's, we're, there's no way we're going to be able to cut it off, or that deer's, you know, over on private, and we need to get them on public if we can. And, you know, it's, it's situations like those, and I'll, I'll go to the, the calling. So. Okay. Is there any specific, and, sorry, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. I was going to say, when it comes to the calling, are you sticking to just a basic grunt or do you like to throw in a snort wheeze or do you have any specific types of sounds you like to make or is that situational? Uh, definitely a snort wheeze. I like to throw in on the, uh, on that, uh, myself, I haven't, uh, had nearly as much results out of say grunting as I have snort wheezing. Um, I've had a lot more results out of that. It seems like, um, that and like I said, just some of that natural sounds of, you know, raking the leaves with the antler, tickling them just a little. You know, sometimes I'll just lay the one antler on the in the leaves and just kind of hit it a little bit with the other antler. And I've had that, you know, 
work just in, you know, and a lot of times I'll start out with that in case there's one on top of, you know, really close, um, you know, so I don't hit them too hard, too long or, or anything like that. But, uh, I definitely like the snort ways. It seems like it gets a lot of, and I just do it with my mouth. I don't think it has to be perfect. I've heard a lot of snort wheezes from deer, and and some of them, it's like, really? That's a snort wheeze? <laughs> um, so I've found that even imperfect snort wheezes right out of your mouth, they, they don't seem to mind at all. Yeah, I'll tell you so. one way you shouldn't snort wheeze, though. Okay. Um, You've, you've probably seen the grunt tubes. They've got a regular grunt tube chamber, and then there's the second chamber that you're supposed to use for the snort wheeze. Have you seen those? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so that's it's basically just like a little funnel. Well, right. in the heat of the moment, I had a big buck walking away from me, and I wanted to snort wheeze at him. And so I did a snort wheeze, but into the regular grunt tube chamber by accident. <laughs> oh. And so it, <laughs> it sounded like a horribly sick duck call or something it was so bad and it scared that buck so far so far it was horrible <laughs> yeah that uh yeah that uh yeah that uh, had to be a bad day was not but. was not good at all so that's one way not to do it <laughs> right right yeah i know what you're talking about with those uh with those chambers um i used to have that one jury call that uh that had it uh, yeah. or that mad mad call that um yeah. That had that chamber. That that worked pretty good for reaching out with them. But uh, lately, I've been just using my mouth, and like I said, um, I don't find where it has to be really that perfect. To, and I I like because it's instantaneous. I don't have to reach for anything, or I can just do it right right there. But uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I love but, the uh, Snorwees too. It seems on those big boys, it's uh, yeah. it's one that can really turn them around. Right, right. It's almost like they'll not pay any mind to a grunt and you snort wheeze and it's like to a big one it's like all right i've had enough <laughs> yeah <we laughs> who are actually, you and what are you doing <laughs> yeah we actually snort wheezed in like a 140 150 inch eight pointer just a couple days ago wow. down in southern ohio wow yeah got him to 40 yards but not quite within a shooting lane so sure bummer yeah but uh but yeah, I mean, you've seen it yourself. But uh, I'd say, you know, I mean, that's probably one of my most effective methods for calling is the is the snort wheeze, you know, yeah, um, that's, that's awesome. along with the antlers sometimes. But. Okay, well, that's that's good to know. I think um, I think Jerry, we're coming up on time here, but yeah, gosh, we have covered some really interesting stuff that I think our listeners are gonna um, be able to take with them, and, and I think you've opened a lot of our listeners eyes to a totally different way of hunting that I think could work for a lot of people if they just would give it a try. And so I'm certainly thinking about different ways I can, uh, try to get on the ground a little bit more and try some of these things out because it sounds like you're having a damn good time. So it is, it's a, it's a fun time. Uh, you, you have those encounters on the ground and even if you don't get them, even if you get close, I mean, it, uh, it's really, it's an adrenaline rush, you know? It is a, a whitetail adrenaline rush. You are right. So, so for people for people out there that want to see, you know, want to check out your DVDs or learn more about whitetail adrenaline, uh, where can they go, Jared? Uh, there's two two ways they can go to our Facebook page, uh, Whitetail Adrenaline, or they can go to our website, uh, WhitetailAdrenaline.com. Perfect. And um, what the new DVDs will be out next summer? Is that going to be right? Yeah, it'll probably probably be late summer. I'm guessing that's when they've uh, 
been coming out, I guess. It's a, it's a lot of work to go through all the unscripted content to, and make the video flow flow well and everything. So it's been taking me a little bit longer than, than I'd like it to. But Well, it seems like it's worth the time because you've been putting out some really, really entertaining videos. So I'll definitely Thank be you. checking out the new ones, and I hope uh, all of our listeners do too. And, Jared, like I said, this has been awesome. So thank you so much for, for being here with us. You bet. Thanks Thanks again, guys, for having me. Yeah, and, and Dan actually had to drop off the line because his wife keeps calling him, so I'm going to give him some crap <laughs> about that. <laughs> okay. But, but he, he wanted well, to tell me things Yeah, as I was well. like, I was wondering, I was like, I was like, uh, I haven't heard Dan in a while. Is he still there? So I, didn't, <laughs> I wasn't sure. So. Yeah, you know, you know how it is with wives. So you got to, uh, when they call, you got to get back to them. So he's already, uh, <laughs> her patience, I think, is already wearing thin since he's been hunting for like 11 straight days now, so... I gotcha. Yeah, so it goes. All right, Jerry. Uh, thank you again, and uh, good luck bet. hunting. All right. Well, thanks again, Mark. All right. We'll talk to you later. Yep. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast in the books, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It's a huge help, so thank you in advance. Also, be sure to visit wiredtohunt.com slash episode 32 for show notes and links from this episode. And finally, we'd like to thank our partners who helped make this show possible. Big thanks to Sika Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Carbon Express Arrows, Huntsoft, Lacrosse Boots, Big and J Long Range Attractants, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. That all said, thanks so much for joining us today on the Wired to Hunt podcast. I hope the rut is rocking for you and that you're having a great time in the woods. So good luck, go hard, and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.